Dr. Nancy O'Reilly's groundbreaking book, In This Together, landed on bookstore shelves with a powerful message. When we work together, we can do absolutely anything. Guidance from 40 women leaders with specific strategies to help women advance their careers makes In This Together even more relevant today, especially with the pandemic's impact on women in the workforce. Take your career to the next level with Dr. Nancy O'Reilly's In This Together, now available on audiobook. Download your copy today. If you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go with a group. Folks, this podcast is brought to you by the Real Leaders Impact Collaborative, our once-a-month virtual impact CEO peer groups who meet to support each other with whatever is keeping them up at night. I joined the group back in September, and if I had to say the one major takeaway that I've received is that to not let things outside business affect your on-court performance. This little change has certainly reflected in our business growth and development. And when our members do well, more lives are transformed. That's what impact is all about. So if you're interested, please email us at info at real-leaders.com. Just say the podcast sent you and you want to speak to someone about the impact collaborative. Again, that's info at real hyphen leaders.com. Enjoy the show. Um, so, so again, find a metric for each stakeholder group and elevate it all the way to the board level. Mm. So have the conversation with your board about the stakeholder model and your approach to business, and then find a metric that matters most for each of those pillars, if you will, and elevate it at the board level and hold yourself accountable to driving that up or down in the case of uh, negative metric, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and so I, that's, that's how we did it. It sounds simple, but like we never used to do that in the beginning. We would just like, you know, walk around with t-shirts and say, you know, stand for something and we care and blah, blah, blah. And that's all good. But the board wasn't necessarily on the same page. It was an education process. This is, you know, fairly new stuff. And so once we did that, it was like, eh, whatever. Yeah, sky's blue. No problem. Yeah, we talk about this all the time. You know, it's become culturally ingrained. Um, which you know can look daunting on the front end. I was like, is are we ever going to be able to pull this off? Mm. And then you know you have a couple conversations, and you know our investors have been amazing about it, and they're like, yeah, yeah. If 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 all of our stakeholders win, then we win. Mm. Period. You are listening to the Real Leaders Podcast, where leaders keep it real. I'm your host Kevin Edwards, and that message today comes from Scott Chisholm the co-founder and now executive chairman at Classy, who after a $118 million funding round suggests everyone can win. And in this episode, Chisholm shares his leadership growth from founder to CEO and now executive chairman, why all metrics should hold equal weight, and that leaders are those who take the bull by the horns. So without further interruption, may I introduce to you episode 201 with the real Scott Chisholm. Enjoy. Four, three, two, and one. And welcome everyone to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Joining us today and coming back on the show today is executive chairman and co-founder of Classy, 
Mr. Scott Chisholm. Scott, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Excited to have you back on. So I just rewatched our last conversation and Mm -hmm. times have changed just a little bit. We were on the 13th floor (laughs) at your building. I was wearing some crazy socks and we got to learn about Classy and the origin story of kind of how it went from PB bar crawl to 13th you know, uh, floor of a, of a building, helping out tons of nonprofits. And then I want to say 20 days later, the pandemic hits. Mm. Tell us what happened since then. Yes. Well, we haven't been back in that building since. <laughs> that, that's uh, that's really? one thing. Um, much like uh, many companies out there who have been working remotely, we, we quickly decided to move um, to a remote work after that. Um, the world kind of stopped, you know, spinning uh, a little bit in March. And that, um, you know, the same thing kind of happened in our space in, in giving. Um, and we saw giving kind of flatline for a few weeks, which is really, I mean, honestly, like the first time that's maybe ever happened to that degree. Mm. If you look at the history of giving, it's one of the most consistent and resilient sectors there is, um, certainly in the United States, but really around the world. So it's more or less up and to the right. And it does, it can slow down with recessions and things like that, but it, it really just kind of perseveres and just keeps going up into the right steady eddy growth for a very long time, which is, um, you know, fantastic for nonprofits uh, and, and, and everyone uh, in society. Um, this particular moment in time, uh, it, it literally kind of stopped. People were like scrambled. They, you know, they, they were like, you know, what do I do? Everyone's getting their bearings. And, and then, um, donations started to really pick up, uh, particularly relief donations to frontline workers on COVID. Um, so that could be hospitals. Um, we work with a, a tons of hospitals around the country. Could be organizations like uh, World uh, Central Kitchen, who works directly uh, to provide food to relief workers and others. Uh, could be food banks. And those types of organizations really started to draw unprecedented levels of funding. Um, in probably March, April, and, and even May of last year. Um, what happened was sort of the tried and true community charity or community foundation um, was really struggling because a lot of the f- donations was going to the, were going to the frontline nonprofits. And the small organization was, was having a hard time breaking through the noise and receiving the funding that they normally get, especially ones that were um, highly rel- re- reliant on physical events because as we all know, physical events just stopped last spring and spring is a huge event fundraising season. So is the fall. And those were just, that was just all erased. So the spring was really like a, just an unbelievably chaotic, um, but inspiring time because you had sort of two tale of two, two cities going on one um, giving did pick up, but it was highly focused on, on COVID relief. Um, And then on the other side of the coin, you had sort of half the sector really struggling that didn't really, you know, certainly wanted to help the COVID relief. It's not that they they were, but that wasn't their core mission. So they were just trying to keep the lights on. They were trying to provide the the services to their local communities that they always do that a lot of folks honestly take for granted. And and I think that was a little bit of a wake up call. Uh, A lot of these nonprofits uh, exist to augment the services that the the government either can't or won't provide. And Mm -hmm. and the spring was a little scary where, um, you know, there was some serious, um, you know, kind of wobbliness in in the local communities. And so over time, I think people kind of figured it out and the relief started, you know, shifting from COVID, although that kept strong to, um, you know, really the rest of the sector uh, and giving ended the year on a high note. 
um, we saw really unprecedented levels of giving um, throughout the entire year. Um, we call it the Zoom effect, where you know things went digital. Um, in our world, you know, when you look at the last ten years of Classy's existence, we started the company, and giving was only two to three percent online, believe it or not. So this is a we're talking a half a trillion dollars that's given in the United States in one form or the other. About three hundred billion of that is from individuals like you and I. More people give than vote in the United States. At least I don't know that this election may have changed that, but uh, that is a, that is how it was up until this last election. So it's very democratized already, and it's not the Warren Buffetts of the world giving major gifts. These are people like you and I that are giving hundred dollar, two hundred dollar, ten dollar gifts to nonprofits. And so we saw that kind of reemerge like never before. Uh, and I think you know it, it, it was a reminder of how ingrained giving is into the fabric of the United States and other countries around the world, it's just our, our society. And it was really inspiring. Um, so we ended on a high note. And this year has been strong, too. We think that organizations are investing online like never before. They're diversifying online. Again, that Zoom effect just carried forward. Uh, the recent stats are that you know last year was somewhere between 10 and 15% online, which is huge mm. compared to 2 to 3% when we started the company. Still seems like a long way to go. And it's hard to believe that that much money is donated through just checks and cash and kind of in-person stuff, but it's that that's the way it is. And so our sector is growing double digits every year, but we still have a long way to go. And that's an interesting parallel because what you're saying about donating being part of the fabric of America. And I think it's a parallel because your organization, you know, started and was and has really been focused on those social outcomes. You know, your your mom was diagnosed with cancer and then you start you, you realize, OK, what's the one way we could help? Well, the Relay for Life is a 24 hour walk around the, uh, a track like that's so much work. And you think about this <laughs> it is, now, it it's a lot of work and it's, and it's contact. You know, you cannot do that contact list. It's hard to do. It's a hard way to you know collect and don't and receive contributions. So mm -hmm. I think about that and I go, you know. Did, did this pandemic maybe vindicate or affirm your beliefs that making contributions easy was always the way to go? And that this is something that now affirms for, for investors that we need to focus on the future? Yeah, I think I think it was a little bit of a kick in the pants for sure. Um, but I, I want to be clear that, you know, online doesn't necessarily equate to easy. Um, it does in a lot of cases, and hopefully it does, you know, via the classy technology, but online can actually be just as frustrating as offline. You know, I think in, in, in the case of, you know, my group of friends, when we were trying to raise money for um, the American Cancer Society back in San Diego, a long line, you know, decades and decades ago, I'm just kidding. Uh, seems like decades ago. Um, you know, we, we were left with that question, why does giving need to be so hard? You know, and that wasn't just the relay for life in the event itself. That didn't necessarily resonate with us. It was really a combination of a lot of factors, you know, the, the first initial interaction with the website, the way that the, the you know, the volunteer and the fundraising opportunities were listed, um, the types of events, the follow on, the, the ability to donate. And it just felt like the whole kind of process had a lot of like too much friction in it. You know, if you were a power user, if you will, like someone that had been attending the Relay for Life for a long time, you probably you were fine. But for someone that was sort of looking for an entry point into philanthropy, was looking for their first real contribution and especially as a 24 25 year old it felt um inaccessible um and it felt like it had a lot of friction and so 
you know, I think it, it's really the, 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 the why he's giving his hard question is certainly um, potentially helped through online, you know, in the shift online, it's it certainly the experience can be far better if it's done well. Um, but I, I often catch myself because, you know, we can't assume that just because it's online, it's, it's easier and it's more accessible in these things. But I do think technology can be an unbelievable enabler mm. um, to do those things for sure. Um, if done right, if done well. Uh, and that's what that's, I mean, that's the thesis that Classy was founded upon, um, was really taking the friction out of the process. Yes, moving things from offline to online, because that is a good first step and it, it puts you on a platform to make giving easier. It really does. Um, but you can't stop there. You can't rest on your laurels. You have to have a strategy. You have to really think through what the giving experience is and all the touch points that the person interacts with your organization online. And that's really what we do. We're, we, you know, we, we like to think of ourselves as a giving experience company. We help nonprofits build world-class giving experiences so that they can generate more money, money and, and maximize their impact. It's kind of as, as simple as that. It's not simple, but you know, in, a, in a sentence, that's how we view what we do. Uh, yes, mostly in the offline world, I mean the online world, um, but we do help organizations bridge the gap. So to sort of do both like physical events, we, do, we, we help power uh, physical events, take registration, point of sale, all that stuff. But we also do virtual events and we do hybrid events, which is really where the world's going moving forward. We expect the big, you know, relays of life, relays, uh, relay for lives of the world to, to continue. Um, but we also expect there to be a virtual component to those events, um, you know, in, in a more significant way moving forward. So you'll kind of have like the physical audience and you'll have the virtual audience and they'll, they'll coexist in a lot of, in a lot of um, events moving forward. And that's interesting because, and that makes a lot of sense that you say that now, because I, I'm on the one to understand that, you know, you cannot automate relationships. So if you have like primetime donors that are really affiliated with your nonprofit about the cause, it might be difficult to get those donors to continue to give if you're not building those relationships, if they're not attending events or things that they like. So is that what you mean by that customer experience and how, maybe explain to our audience for people listening to Classy for the first time, totally. What, how you give uh, people that experience. Yeah, absolutely. I was, I was just thinking to myself, I don't know if I've actually explained what we do. Um, but, you know, I think people have probably picked it up here and there. Um, you know, Classy is a, a, a social enterprise technology company that empowers nonprofits to raise money through a suite of online fundraising tools. We do everything from peer-to-peer -peer fundraising and crowdfunding um, all the way to events. I mentioned physical and virtual events um, to what we call fundraising direct, which is recurring giving management, website donations, international. And we also have payments and a, and a robust back end for organizations to basically be able to have insight into their donor base and then nurture those donors over time. Mm. So when I'm talking about the giving experience, I'm really talking about the person's first interaction to, to the organization onward. Um, we focus on the conversion. So like the, the, the money generating moment. Um, so someone might've looked at the organization on social or, or, you know, in 10 other ways, but the moment they're ready to, um, you know, they're thinking about giving, um, our job is to drive the conversion rate up as much as possible on behalf of the nonprofit organization. We're, we're kind of like Shopify for nonprofits. We're sort of the nonprofit storefront, if you will, um, across all of their different campaigns and events. Uh, and our job is to make the process as simple as easy, um, to make it high converting, and to help the organization convince people in a good way um, to become recurring donors versus just a one-time fleeting donor that says, hey, you could, you know, here's a hundred dollar gift and I'll never see you again. You know, that's nice, 
But what really organizations are looking for is to build a sustainable business model, a sustainable revenue source. And online is a phenomenal way to do that. There's a lot of, you know, sort of noise in the online space. You know, there's more people are asking you for money than ever before, right? Like your neighbors, something happened to your neighbors. So there's a GoFundMe campaign. There's, you know, this, that, and the other. So it, online has made giving more accessible in terms of just organizational discovery, if you will. Um, but that also creates a lot of, quote unquote, competition and noise, you know, for organizations to sift through and to try to break through. Break, break through. So what they're looking to do is personalize the experience for you, you know, A, uh, and make it as simple as possible to bring you from essentially intent to first gift to then become a recurring donor, because ultimately that's that's what they want. And the world's moving that way too, especially the younger generation. More and more people are subscribing, quote unquote, to nonprofits than ever before, because they're used to that behavior. They're used to subscribing to things in their lives. We call it subscription giving at Classy, but it's a real phenomenon. You know, we last year we did a billion dollars across the platform, um, across every six thousand nonprofits. And um, upwards of 20% of that was from subscription giving. Mm -hmm. So that's 20% of the billion coming from donors who said, yes, I'm going to give to you monthly in, a, in the form of a subscription, if you will, or quarterly or annually. And that trend is only going up. We actually see a path to a billion dollars in recurring giving over the next couple of years, which we're leaning into because it's, it's where the space is going. But the organizations lack the tools to really... Um, you know, foster a sort of, um, I call it VIP relationship with their recurring donor base in that way, in the right way online. And what strikes me, I guess what resonates with me is that this is essentially what, you know, marketers and for-profit companies are trying to do as well. And so the mm -hmm. quote that sticks out to me from the last interview is you said, and I've never heard this said before, is that you said that for-profits can learn from non-profits. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I haven't watched that interview in a while, so let's make sure that I'm consistent on what I said. But I, I think what I was talking about there, um, you know, nonprofits are exceptionally good um, at what I would call um, a lot of times brand and high touch experience for their donors because they rely, it's their lifeblood, right? It's like they are, um, you know, quick to um, serve, they're quick to respond. Um, but when you where that breaks down is in the online channel, actually, and, and at scale. So when they have, you know, 100 donors, 200 donors, whatnot, they're incredible. Um, a lot of interaction and personalization, a lot of connection to the impact. But when you're talking about 1000 donors or 10,000 donors, how do you do that? Um, just naturally, the experience breaks down in the for profit space, right? You have a lot of tools that help companies um, do this, like, uh, for example, Gainsight or uh, Pendo or, you know, a slew of marketing automation tools. Um, in, the, in the nonprofit space, there's really a lack of options in this particular area. So it's not just the transactional piece. Um, it's, the, it's the ability to communicate at scale and engage your donor base in the right way. Uh, and that's the, that's the hole or the gap we're trying to fill. So it's not just about, you know, taking the donation. Uh, it's about nurturing the relationship and the communications after. Mm. Um, but maybe, uh, you know, in that last interview, I was talking about how, um, you know, organizations, you know, in, in, especially in, in the offline world, really um, do have an amazing, really do give an amazing experience, like hands on like this, like you and I talking. Um, and, and there's a lot to be learned from that. In fact, we study the offline success and try to mimic that online quite a bit. Um, just like everyone moving to Zoom and now this is the new norm. It's like, how do you replicate all the like awesomeness 
of the offline fundraising world that has worked for a very long time, um, but is slowly kind of dying just because of gener generational shift. Young people want to be online. So how do you take the goodness there and replicate it at scale? How do you grow meaningful relationships over time at, at, a, at, a, at, a, at a scale like 1,000, 10,000, a million donors? Like, how does that work? Uh, and that's a real that's a real business problem uh, for the organization. It's a real technology challenge too for for companies like Classy. Yeah, I think that's a business problem that you're solving in a socially constructive way. Like Classy is is a for profit organization for people listening out there, and you're really maximizing the opportunities for these nonprofits to raise funds. So when you think about that as an organization. Um, you know, what are some perks of that? You mentioned sustainability. Sustainability to me is being resilient in an ever-changing business landscape. Obviously, the business landscape has changed since COVID. You're able to sustain, you know, some good cash flow that's coming in because your organization, you know, is is built on this purpose and staying authentic throughout and is really adaptable when when something changes. Like, how do you perceive your organization or your philosophy on how business is? Yeah, I mean that, that's a great question. So, so one is just on, the online channel generally is is far more efficient. In the offline channel, like when when a nonprofit is looking to fundraise through direct mail or call centers or something like that, you know they could pay a dollar to make a dollar. So they're paying a dollar in cost to make a dollar in a donation, and they're betting on the second and the third and the fourth gift from that donor. In the online space, it's more like pennies on the dollar that they're paying for that donation. So it's, it's literally, you know, kind of game changing from an efficiency standpoint and a cost standpoint. So that's like table stakes. That's, you know, kind of, you know, the, the first piece of, of the, of the, of the benefit, I think. Um, and then it just comes down to ROI. Like once you're already in the, in the uh, online channel, like how are you maximizing the opportunity with every donor that shows intent to give to your organization. And that comes down to sort of hard math, like conversion rates. Again, I mentioned Shopify. You know, why do people use Shopify? Because it's a great experience. But at the end of the day, when people start looking and browsing in the store, they end up buying something. That's not that different from what we, how we think about um, the experience uh, of the giving experience on behalf of our nonprofit customers. When someone shows intent and they look at a form or they go to a crowdfunding page or they browse around an event, we are trying to optimize that flow for them to basically convert. So there's a real value. The industry average conversion rate on forms is like 15% in our space, which is really low. Um, ours is almost 30% and growing. So it's about double what the industry averages, which you know we're proud of, but we're not. We're we're definitely not stopping there. We think it mm -hmm. could be even higher with things like sure. mobile wallets and peer-to-peer um, -peer payments and all sorts of stuff like that. So the the conversion is going up and up and up. And then from there, it's about donor retention. 80% of new donors, meaning first-time donors to an organization, do not, give a, do not give again. They go away. So if you're a business, think about that. You, you, you bring in you know, 80% of the new revenue that you brought in this, this year from your customers leaves you. I mean, that is really tough. Mm -hmm. So donor retention is really the elephant in the room. Conversion on the front end is, is important. Don't get me wrong in that giving experience, but how you keep them around, how you build that meaningful relationship over time, that's the challenge. And with technology and online, you might get a really wide top of the funnel, meaning a lot of people showing interest, maybe even giving for a first time. And giving is happening in more places than ever before. We could talk about that in a second. But what happens is a massive drop-off 
on the second donation because they're distracted. The world's really noisy. They might have given, you know, I might have given to you through your peer to peer page, but I don't really know the organization or, mm. you know, I was I, I just had this impulsive moment of, of you know, generosity and I gave to an organization over here. It's like, how do you create those fibers between the nonprofit and the and the donor where they're going to want to give again, where they're interested in learning more? And that's really the challenge. It's the retention piece. So when you talk about the value prop, it's efficiency, which is just the online channel generally. And, and I think, you know, us democratizing enterprise grade software for smaller nonprofits as well. Um, and then it's just the, the math. Uh, and again, that recurring piece. So keeping them around. Um, you know, the, the space in general is moving from kind of like, I like to say, uh, you know, a charity handout model, which is like, yeah, I'm going to give to you once out of the kindness of my heart. And that happens, don't get me wrong, to more of a social investing mindset, which is like, I'm not just going to give to you once. I'm going to give to you indefinitely mm. if you can show me a return on my investment. Mm. If you can connect me to the impact in shorter cycles, this isn't like a $100 gift, I trust you, I'm out of here type of thing. This is, I'm going to actually give to you for the next five years, but I want updates on the project you told me about in that nice little landing page you sent me with a beautiful picture, right? Like, I actually want to know if you built that park or you, you saved that family or whatever, not because I don't believe you, because I want to be part of the journey. Take me along for the ride. That's where it's going. Uh, and it's going to intersect with, you know, portfolio management and finance. Like people have DAFs now. That's impact management at a portfolio level. Mm -hmm. So these things are intersecting and that's where the whole space is going. And I think that the backbone of that is really this idea of subscription giving and this idea of in social investing versus sort of a one-time um, charitable gift, if you will. So you see this crossing over, do you see, or do you see this crossing over into the for-profit sector as well with impact organizations uh, like a social enterprise? Let's say Patagonia, for example, I want to purchase their products and measuring their impact is becoming increasingly important for me as a consumer who wants to see their transparency throughout the supply chain, something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's happening on both sides. So I think the bar is going up for impact measurement, if you will, um, in both the nonprofit space and the for-profit space. As people become increasingly interested, whether it's ESG um, or it's you know nonprofit program impact, um, you know th there's a sort of we're we're in I think a prove it moment on both sides. It's like you can talk about impact all day long. Impact's a great buzzword, and I love that it is a buzzword. But there there needs to be substance behind that. And again, it's not that that. I think people get confused like around like, you know, oh, well, if Patagonia is not transparent, they must be like lying. You know, they must be for a fraudulent organization. Well, no, maybe the, maybe the systems and the processes aren't there for them to actually report it in the way you want to. Right. That's a that's a business opportunity for a lot of for them and for other companies, including Classy. Um, how do you create that feedback loop, that mm -hmm. impact feedback loop for a for profit or a nonprofit? I just donated one hundred dollars or I just bought this new Patagonia shirt. What next? What happened with that? Right. You know, take me along for the ride. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's a huge opportunity moving forward on both sides. And I do see a lot of crossover. So you see it could, you know, like lower churn, it could increase your customer lifetime value if you're selling online products or anything that uh, would require intangibles, impact measurement, brand loyalty, all that good stuff. Yeah. I mean, it, it, you know, it's, in, at its most basic form, it's it's impact storytelling, but it's you know mixed with actual data and results, right? It's not just on the front end. Mm. It's not cause marketing, and it's not you know nonprofit marketing. It's 
it's practice what you preach. It's show me, it's prove it marketing. It's saying, Hey, look, like this is what's actually happening. Look at these results. You know, just like, just like if I invested in your company, you'd give me investor out updates, right? It's a very similar mindset. Like, okay. how's the company doing? How's my money being used? Like, how, what's the return look like? And that's happening at the highest level, you know, with impact investing and ESG somewhat, but it's, we're still so early uh in, in it all which is exciting i think it's 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 really exciting actually well i'm excited that you and you mentioned the word daf donor advised fund i haven't heard anyone mention that in a while and, and donor <laughs> funds are new and impact investing is new and so uh, i want to take us back a step and just first congratulate you on this new fundraising opportunity 118 million dollars from vcs Explain what comes along with that when we're talking about growth within a company and staying authentic to the core. Yeah, there's, there's, you know, I think there's always this sort of wrestle between grow, 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 stay authentic at the core. I don't think they're binary. I think you can do both, but it's pretty easy to get ahead of yourself on one dimension or the other uh, and lose sight of, you know, the other one. Um, And that's what really the stakeholder philosophy is all about. It's about balance. It's not about slow growth. It's not about lack of ambition. It's not about not making money or profit. It's about balance. And it's about a holistic viewpoint versus a sort of, you know, um, singular viewpoint with blinders on. And so when I think about this, and we've learned a lot over the over the years, like, I mean, Classy had to live through this. We talked about this on the last podcast where, you know, we had an activist investor at Classy who did have blinders on, who did not appreciate the stakeholder model, who did not care about becoming a B Corp or, or having that balance. Um, they cared about their return only. And that is a bummer. And it was hard to see that play out. It's not that we were so naive that we didn't think that that existed, but we just almost assumed that investors attracted to our type of company would 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 appreciate that mindset. And that wasn't the case. Um, and for us, like going through that, and it was painful. And, and we ended up parting ways. They're no longer an investor. We ended up buying them out and bringing on new investors who shared those values. And the Series D um, with Norwest Venture Partners was a, was a big step for us. I'll get to that in a sec. But really, it comes down to that sort of holistic mindset. Um, and we had to live, I like to say, it's like almost like seeing like kind of the, the worst side of capitalism like play out in a fairly small tech company. Like we weren't even that big several years ago. Um, and it was, you know, it was, it was painful, but it was a, it was a lesson that was worth um, going through because it taught us how to essentially elevate that thinking and codify it through the organization all the way to the board. Mm-hmm. Now, B certification is one way to do that because it really, um, it's a very rigorous process and it's rewarding once you get through it, right? Um, we were super grateful to end with like a 115 score. I think it's minimum 80 to get in. Um, that really teaches you a lot about yourself. Um, it is a look in the mirror moment from a social and environmental perspective. It doesn't have the teeth that it needs, kind of. It doesn't really hit the governance as much, but they just added this requirement where you, you have to become a public benefit corporation within two years after you get your certification, which is going to be really interesting. Mm-hmm. So for B certified companies that are not public benefit corporations, they're C corps or S corps or something else. They're going to have a they're going to have a, a moment, a big decision moment, whether they want to keep their certification or they want to change their governance. We were very happy that um, Norwest and our current board and investors um, supported our our decision to move from a C corp to a public benefit corporation, which again brings a lot of the values that are part of the B certification process right into the board level governance. So it basically says, you know, now 
as a public benefit corporation, we have to weigh the impact of our social and environmental um, decision-making um, alongside our fiduciary duty and our profit-making. So it basically brings that holistic stakeholder viewpoint right into the governance of the company versus a seal or a stamp of approval that you go through. That's still great, don't get me wrong, but this takes it to another level where the board is actually accountable for these things. And so that's huge. Uh, and you know, I, I applaud anyone that is able to you know, either you know, transform in that way um, or even start as a, a PBC. I think it's a, a, a really amazing category of company that is gonna reshape things. I think it's a really good way to explain really what a social enterprise is, is that, you know, those CEOs of leaders, they have to convince, you know, the, the shareholders uh, that, you know, we have to make decisions that are with our intention because we are mission locked now. So I'm interested because that's also going to raise the bar of the leadership of your organization. You guys are definitely going to face mm -hmm. diff, you know, difficult obstacles. Have you had any time? I know it's recently, you know, it's new, it's recent. Have you had any time to think about you know, some scenarios that you could run into and how you would go about decision making and advice for any leaders listening to this out there. I think first is just honestly having the conversation. If, if you believe it, but it's not talked about with your board, then it doesn't really exist because at some point it's going to come to a head. Your board are, you know, your co-leaders of your organization. And it's easier to start the stuff on day one and in the early, you know, formation of your company um, before you have a large and complicated board. So, you know, codifying your um, core purpose, which is your mission, your values and vision, and then your approach to business, which really is social enterprises an approach to business. It's not that C-Corps and, um, you know, just pure for-profit companies can't have strong core purposes. Of course they do. Look at like Apple back in the day and so many different companies. Um, this just takes it a, a step further and it really... Um, holds the company and the board accountable to making sure that we're looking at things from a holistic mindset. So first, A, just have a conversation. Say, this is what we believe as leaders. When you bring in an investor, for example, you put that right on the table. Um, you know, I, I started to learn to put things in our term sheets when we raise money. So for example, in this term sheet for our Series D financing, we got pre-approval from Norwest Venture Partners to become a public benefit corporation. I did that because I wanted to have the conversation up front so it didn't become a problem later. And I wanted to see where their values were on this, you know, where their, where their thinking was. Same thing, uh, same thing applies to when you're a smaller company um, and you're raising your first dollar. You know, you're, you're, you really got to check to see if your investors' values and their approach to business line up with your own or else it's going to eventually um, be an issue. That would be the number one thing. And then the number two would be, once you've had that conversation, bring the metrics into the board. So instead of just reporting on revenue, profit, you know, blah, 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 cash flow, that's definitely something you should be reporting on. Don't get me wrong, but report on the other metrics and treat them with equal weight. So how's, what's, what's the metric for your staff, right? Your employees are a huge stakeholder. We use something called ENPS, which is employee NPS score. And we pulse and check how people are feeling. Mm throughout the quarters. Is that the best measurement uh, that they'll ever be for this? I don't know, probably not, but it's a good starting point and it drives a conversation because when people give you the score, they give you feedback. So now all of a sudden we elevate that to the board level and we say, hey, like, you know, let's spend 10 minutes looking at what's the, you know, how is our staff doing? You know, what's the EMPS today or this quarter rather? Um, same with community, which is another one of our stakeholders in many, you know, 
many companies have the same kind of four, um, which would be um, team or customers, team, um, financial or investors, and community. Um, for community, we're using the BSERT score. Okay. Um, so, so again, find a metric for each stakeholder group and elevate it all the way to the board level. Mm. So have the conversation with your board about the stakeholder model and your approach to business, and then find a metric that matters most for each of those pillars, if you will, and elevate it at the board level and hold yourself accountable to driving that up or down in the case of a negative metric, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and so I, that's, that's how we did it. It sounds simple, but like we never used to do that in the beginning. We would just like, you know, walk around with t-shirts that say, you know, stand for something and we care and blah, blah, blah. And that's all good. But the board wasn't necessarily on the same page. It was an education process. This is, you know, fairly new stuff. And so once we did that, it was like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, sky's blue. No problem. Yeah, we talk about this all the time. You know, it's become culturally ingrained, um, which, you know, can look daunting on the front end. I was like, is are we ever going to be able to pull this off? Mm. And then, you know, you have a couple of conversations and, you know, our investors have been amazing about it. And they're like, yeah, yeah. If, 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 if all of our stakeholders win, then we win, mm. period. And, and that's interesting in that you're well, one that you were able to do that. And so I was curious to say, gosh, you know, this would be this is like a great signal, you know, for the, the markets to say, look, here are traditional investors finally being able to understand or at least be convinced by you know, the CEO that this model can work. And it's the reason for it being take this model out and we're not the same company. Mm-hmm. What was it specifically that those took so long for those investors to understand? Was it I mean. Any advice you have? I'm, I'm trying to get to that, that moment for investors to understand and comprehend what it means to be a social enterprise and that you can still have a return on your investment. Was it the risk? Was it employee engagement? Was it the intangibles? What was it specifically? It was, you know, honestly, it was, you know, we're in our, we're in our 10th year. It was years of performance um, and, sh- and, and showing it and proving it that this works. Um, and we have, uh, we've had our down moments, we've had our up moments, but largely this model has been phenomenal for us. But I will say that it was some of the, you know, the, the, the metrics thing at the board level sounds so simple, but, and, and people listening might say, well, yeah, of course I do NPS for my customers or in course I do this or that. Yeah, but have you put the same weighting on those things? Have you elevated it to, the, to the, all of those metrics or your four most important across stakeholders? Have you elevated it to the same level as revenue? Have you, have, it, have, you, have, you, have you brought it to the board level and said, these things are crucially important. If one of these falls down, yeah. like that's not good, right? Like that's a, that's a red alert moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what we've tried to do. And so, you know, once we talked through why, why is this metric important? What does it do? How does it, how does it tie to business success? You know, and for everyone, that's going to be a little different. But obviously, if our customers and our employees are, you know, really digging the, the classy experience from obviously technology and from a working here perspective, that's really good. Mm-hmm. But you got to try to tie those things together, you know, and, 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 and each stakeholder is really supportive um, of the overall business success. And that's the case you've, you've got to make. Um, ultimately, I think it's not as hard, honestly, as I thought it was in my head. <laughs> they came around real quick. It wasn't like, wait, what are you talking about? You're speaking a foreign language or something like, well, it's the reaction you normally get is like, well, yeah, of course, like that's how business works. Right. Mm. But it's, it, it's just a slight diff. It's a slight difference between, yeah, those metrics and those, that attention is, you know, somewhere in the organization, of course, 
to no, these are like these are our north star metrics. Like revenue is not just that. Never use a piece of that, right? Or or cash flow is a piece of that. But here are these other four metrics across these stakeholders that are equally weighted, right? And that difference is is I've learned is is a really big deal. Uh, it can't be understated. It, it appears that that you all have like some uncompromising values that you'll never go against, and those that stakeholder approach may be one of them. Your vision, your mission, your your lock, your north star maybe something to always allude to. When you make this transition from a CEO to now the executive chair of the board, how is your role going to change in terms of leadership? Mm -hmm. That's a really good question. Um, you know, I've always kind of thought of myself as a player coach, you know, just generally, that's how I kind of treated the CEO position. Um, and, you know, one of high trust and trying to build many CEOs within the organization to be kind of, you know, self-sustaining, if you will. Um, and I don't know if that changes, that attitude changes that much. Um, the, the gentleman that I, um, you know, put in, put in my seat, um, he's phenomenal. He's been around with the organization for a long time um, as a board member, actually, initially an investor, board member, advisor. And then as an operator, um, he came in as our chief operating officer. He has nonprofit experience with fair trade. He was a CFO of fair trade and and then he was an executive at Salesforce, a high-level executive for a long time. So he's got this really interesting combination of experience mm -hmm. on both sides that is really fantastic. Um, so it's a very natural transition for me. And you know, kind of go, getting to the why behind it. Um, you know, I, I think every leader, you know, has these like self-awareness. Hopefully, some level of self-awareness in these moments of reflection. Um, and every year or so, I would think, you know, am I am I the best person for this this role right now? Like, am I is my, you know, do my skill sets match up with where we need to go? Mm. And I think oftentimes founders will make the mistake to say, yeah, I, I can, I can do that. You know, I'll muscle through it. Right. And that could be the right choice. And there's been times where I've thought about this and, you know, is this the right time? And I've, I've come to the, no, it's not the right time. Like I am, I, I do need to bring this forward to this, this point or whatever. Mm. Um, but this was one of those times where I was like, this is the right time to bring in someone, not someone external because I'm doing a bad job, but someone that knows the organization from the inside that has that experience at different levels of scale and can help take Classy to, you know, phenomenal heights. At the same time, it, this wasn't like, a, you know, I'm, I'm exiting the organization. It was like, well, my role can evolve and I can start to look at what I'm calling next, next horizon product development. So almost like building a startup within a startup. You know, how, where does Classy need to go? Jeff Bezos has that line. I think he's credited with it. Probably someone else said it too. But, um, you know, how do you disrupt yourself? You know, and that's kind of like what I'm working on in a way. Um, how do we disrupt the old Classy and, and you know, push into the new, new frontier? Uh, and that's really energizing for me. And so, you know, Chris's operational strengths mixed with, you know, kind of my building, you know, building from scratch mentality. Um, is really what we're trying to do. And I, I love it. I think it's phenomenal. So from a leadership perspective, you know, coming full circle, um, I don't know if it changes much. I'm here to support him and the team just as much as I was before. Um, I think we all, you know, try to support each other. We have sort of a, a servant leadership sort of view on things. Um, so I don't know if it necessarily changes because I'm full time. Um, but it is kind of like going backwards in a way, in a good way, um, where it's like the early days of classy for me because I, I don't you know i'm not gonna have big teams i'm gonna have like one person <laughs> you know so we're just it's a seedling again uh and that's pretty exciting and so some of the areas in this you know in our announcement we talked about this and 
it's no secret, um, you know, 2020 really shone a light on the corporate giving space and, and employee giving to me. And that's actually an area that we're going to probably enter um, and try to help, again, remove that friction in the giving process. Because the classy's thesis is just making giving easier. You know, how do we make giving easier? How do we remove the friction? That starts with, you know, the nonprofit themselves and all of, you know, their campaigns and events. But it quickly moves into other channels where people are giving. So people give in more places than ever before. They're giving at, at work more than they ever have. They're giving when they shop, either offline or online. They're giving when they game. They're giving through their donor advised funds, like you mentioned, in their financial institutions. Um, they're giving everywhere. And so how do we plug into those places? How do we match new donors to our 6,000 nonprofits? How do we make that, you know, that matching process, if you will, easier, the search and discovery and connecting donors who have certain intentions and characteristics with nonprofits who have certain characteristics and, and be matchmaker. And that's really a really, I, I, to me, that's something that is necessary and hasn't been done very well. Like you can find charity search sites, sure, but this is about meeting donors where they're at. You know, how do we connect the dots between our existing um, roster of nonprofits, many you'd know, with donors who want to find them? And that's a really interesting challenge. And it's, it's again, like kind of a startup within a startup. I'm really excited about it. Wow. I'm so happy for you, man. That's, congratulations that you're able to get to that point uh, where, you know, hey, I'm not, maybe I'm not the man for this job. And I want to continue to do what gives me energy. And that's, you know, disrupting this organization, disrupting the industry and trying to give more in a way that I know how. So I think that's really special. And that's something that I think a lot of people, including myself, can learn from, uh, no doubt. Uh, I guess my, my next question would be, you know, when you're doing this, like, how long can you keep this up? I mean, is this something that you've thought about in the long term? Like, why are you continuing to do this? Like, why, why do you mm -hmm. think you still have the time and the energy to do this uh, while instead of just maybe cashing out or going to pursue something else? Mm hmm. Well, I can answer it for myself personally, but I, I think I'd rather zoom out and answer it on behalf of everyone that works at Classy or will work at Classy. Um, we're tackling a problem that is, I mean, honestly, could go on past our lifetime. Like there, there is no doubt that someone will be working on making giving easier uh, and connecting nonprofits and donors for the next 100, 200 years. You know, it's nonprofits. Um, offer tremendous benefits to society and, and usually fill the holes where government or, or others um, business, you know, where, the, where they have gaps or, the, or that things fall down. And so I don't see that going anywhere. So the space has never been more important. Um, there's a massive generational shift happening. So younger people are getting involved in philanthropy earlier than they ever have before and sort of millennials are coming into their own so so the dynamics are completely shifting and then the world's move has moved online i was going to say is moving online pretty much happened this year um and so all those two things are it's like i feel like we're in the first inning like it's not even we're just mm -hmm. getting started now coming back to me I, it's it's less about me it's about the organization how do you build an organization that's built to last using jim collins's um phrase how do you make it durable so that it can go on without me like i'm not saying who cares about scott or chris or sure like we still want to be involved i think that this is our moment in time but there'll be a moment in time for someone else to take the organization to new heights and when you think of that about the organization and building it that way it doesn't you know it's not scary transition's not scary it's and it's not 
it's not something that um, you know you have to look at like so binary. Meaning, oh, I'm out of energy. Um, you know, I'm I have too much ego to pass the baton to someone else. So let's just sell the company. That happens a lot. They say the number one reason founders sell their companies is because they're tired. <laughs> I've experienced that for sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Just because they, they, they're they tired and they don't have the mental energy to not give up because the number one trait of a great founder CEO is not business skills. It's not giving up. And so if you lose the mental fortitude and energy because you're just tired, it's it's like running a it's like a marathon, but you're running like at you know, two X, three X speed for like a long time. Um you know, and people get into those zones. That's why co-founders are actually great. My co-founder would be the one to tap me on the shoulder when I was ready to call it and be like, don't quit. It's like, that's really valuable, you know, because that is actually the moment where things just go, okay. Mm. And as you get into scale, you'll get offers, you'll, there'll be lots of opportunities um, to choose a different path than, than an independent one in a hundred year vision, right? Like there's gonna be, if you find, if you see and find success, there will be options to do quicker things, right? Like you know, not hundred year uh, journeys. Um, but for us, it's like, let's just keep building an amazing company and, and see what happens and keep that North star long. Um, let's not optimize for the short term. Let's plan for the long term. Uh, and, and great things will happen for us and our customers and our stakeholders. And that's been our, that's been honestly our, our, our mental map since day one, but you do get into ruts. You do get into those moments where it's like, shit, this is hard. And like, I've been doing this, you know, let's just make it, I've been doing it seven years and man, like it would be nice to just not do this for a little while, mm -hmm. but you don't necessarily have to make, ex take extreme action to solve those problems. There's ways you can talk to your board about taking time off. There's, you know, maybe look at yourself in the mirror and say, have I really built the executive team that gives me leverage to, to evolve my own career and my own thinking um, within this organization without leaving the organization? And in a way, that's what the CEO transition is, right? It's like, it's re-energizing for me. I've put someone into the role that I think is honestly better than me from an operator perspective. That's okay. Um, he, he once said, well, you know, I wouldn't have been able to get classy to where it is today. Like I'm more of a scale guy. And I looked at him and said, well, I'd never be, I don't know if I'd be able to scale it from here to, to 200 or whatever. Um, and so, you know, you got to look for those opportunities and lose, kind of check the ego and look at the things as a long-term story, a long-term journey that's going to have multiple um, actors and multiple characters. And you're just one of them. And I've always tried to think about it that way. It's not always easy, but um, I tried to put classy first versus myself in the center of the story. Well, Scott, I know you're really passionate about what you do, and it seems like you have a very strong, you know, emotional intelligence. And when I say that, you know, uh, you know, it's a strong self-awareness about yourself and the others around you. When you're trying to make big decisions like the ones that you've described on this show, one, describe like how you like to live. Are you isolated? Are you around people? And then two, describe who you rely upon, what you rely upon internally or externally that could justify making a decision. Interesting. So I would say, I would actually, I don't know if this was an extrovert introvert question, but I, I would probably paint myself more as slight introvert, which is interesting. And that's just like a, how you, how you kind of, gain energy. Um, I find that I need to mix alone in creative time with, you know, people time. Um, that's very difficult as a CEO, by the way. <laughs> what, is so, what is creative time to you real quick? Um, creative time could, could honestly be 
just working on a solo project just without interference, or it could be working in the garden, you know, and free thinking. Uh, I think it depends on who the person is. I don't think we do enough of it. I don't think we budget time for that. I think working remotely has helped, but, um, you know, a lot of people don't have the luxury of just gardening. They've got to watch their kids. They've got to do this and do that. So, I mean, you know, maybe that's helped to free up some time. So you're sitting in an office all day long, but I, I do think people need to look at like kind of the psychology of, of efficiency, if you will, business efficiency. And I do think that um, both extroverts and introverts could use um, more time away from Zoom, more time away from meetings, more people time and more thinking time because um, I think a lot of good happens that way. For me, I know I need it. Um, I'll, I'll burn out, uh, you know. And so um, for me specifically, um, you know, it could be listening to podcasts are great, for example, because it's just you listen to someone then you're like, you could be like half listening. All of a sudden an idea pops in your head about something you've been trying to solve, right? Um, I think that's, I think listening to books and listening to podcasts are awesome um, while gardening. <laughs> so both, um, but even just, yeah, just like running, you know, finding time to exercise, finding, finding some time to play with your kids, um, those types of things. Um, they can be actually just as productive as sitting in an office for eight hours, you know? So I've tried to remind myself, it's a really difficult thing to do. It sounds even silly coming out of my mouth now because all I did was just crank and work and sit in front of a computer for so many years. Um, so in a lot of cases, just unrealistic, but I do think um, creating that space and that balance is really important. And I, and I cut you off there too. I interrupted you. Uh, the original question was, you know, are, you see yourself maybe more as a slight introvert, but when it comes to the decision-making, are you relying upon that internal reflection or are you reaching mm -hmm. out to your co-founder, to family members, to uh, stakeholders to justify this decision making? You know, I'm, I'm, I really like feedback, but I would say that I'm decisive at the same time. Like I'll take as much information as that is there for me um, to a level of comfort and then I'll make a decision. And I don't drag decisions on very often. And I think I've learned to do it even better and optimize it over time. I don't need perfect information. In fact, my flaw was probably making decisions too quickly mm. um, with, with imperfect information or too imperfect of information. Um, I like to think I've honed that in to find that sweet spot. Some people wait too long and they drag it on and they need everyone's feedback. And that can be paralyzing. Um, imperfect decisions without enough information could also be damaging because you're just rushing into something, trying something. Uh, I am more of a break at first and see what happens type of person though. I'd like, you know, as, as long as you're not overspending or going, you know, crazy. Like I, I, I do actually like the, why don't we just try that and see what happens approach. That's not always, that's not always the best path. Um, in a startup, early startup it is. Um, but, you know, when you're scaling, you don't necessarily just want to like throw things against a wall and see what happens, right? You want to be a little bit more methodical. Mm. So I've tried to hone that in and my decision-making is definitely based on feedback and data and I sort of try to synthesize it all and make a quick decision. And, you know, I'm wrong a lot of times. That's okay. You just got to recognize it quick and, and be able to adjust. But because of the synth synthesizing and taking feedback and stuff, um, I'd like to think I've been right more than wrong. And that's not because I'm so smart. It's literally because, you know, I, I try to listen and actually pay attention to what people are saying and then make the decision based on all of that with my own judgment applied on top. Mm -hmm. I think if you can do that, if you're not making decisions in isolation, 
um, that can be really challenging, really dangerous, actually. Um, and if you're not dragging decisions on forever and you're needing like 100 people to weigh in, which is also really, you know, it's not good. Um, there's a trade-off between speed and perfection. And you got to find that, that, you know, in between, I think. I like that a lot. Uh, so when it comes to like the employees in your organization, you, you mentioned, you know, create, creative times are really important time. You mentioned decision-making, kind of how you like to make decision-making and, you know, maybe you'll, you'll fail fast. Uh, do you have a policy or a philosophy on how you like to empower your employees when it comes to decision-making or flexibility or creative time? Everyone has their own style. I would say that I, I give, um, you know, a very long leash, if you will. Um, meaning like I really treat the folks that report to me almost like they're, they're independent entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm not saying this is the best way to do it right. because it's a lot of trust given into that person. I think I've had to optimize that approach as well and learn to be a better coach and learn to have more consistent check-ins versus like, Hey, here's our goal. Go do it. It's like, yeah, here's a goal. Here's a goal. Go do it. Um, but maybe we should check in on your progress once in a while versus be seeing you like two months from now, you know, and that part of it is just bandwidth. And when you're growing and scaling, you're just like, you go, you go, you go, you go. Uh, and then you have to learn how to go from being a founder to being an actual CEO. And that's a little bit different with a team that relies on you. And, you know, I, I also think there's the other side, the, the flip side is, you know, you don't want a team that if you're spending way too much time with your teams and then something's wrong. Like if your team is just dragging you down and you're coaching all the time, then perhaps you don't have the right leaders under you that's creating the right leverage for you. You don't want to not be coaching, mm -hmm. um, but you don't want to be, you're not a full-time coach. That's not, that's not what your job is. You're hiring people that have those skills and experiences where they create leverage for you to be thinking about the future, to be bringing the new things to the table. And that takes solo time, you know? Uh, and, and if you're just getting dragged down by just coaching, 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 and you're trying to bring a person up sort of unnaturally, that's when you got to sort of maybe call time out and, and look at that arrangement. So, you know, some people say you never should be coaching your executive team. I'm not sure about that. I think that I've learned that you, you, you should be coaching the team and it doesn't necessarily mean, oh, I'm a better leader than you. Let me coach you how to lead or let me coach you in your leadership capabilities. I guess maybe sometimes that happens, but more bringing them along with your thinking. Um, just like we're talking about donor experience early on, right? It's like bring them along in the journey, give them the business context, let them into the board conversations. All of that stuff, all of that stuff helps them make better decisions when you're not there. So don't just, you know, give them a goal and let go, give them a goal and then keep feeding them information and context about what's happening in the business, where your head's at, how you're seeing things. Mm. That is very helpful. And you, you can't forget to do that. Don't look at those moments as an annoyance. Those are actually huge optimization moments for the person that is working on a goal that you gave them months ago. And that's what I've learned, right? It's not like, you know, hey, let's sit down and let's, you know, let's really look at all of your strengths and weaknesses. Like, okay, there's moments for that, but really it's about, you know, how is, you know, your brain shifting? How is your perspective shifting? How, how are you feeling about the project that you gave me two months ago? Um, what else have you learned that you could actually help me now? Mm. Because two months is a long time in, in, in our world. Um, and so that's how I've thought about it. And I think just calibrating 
that was one of my biggest um, areas of opportunity and hopefully became a strength later on in my CEO tenure. I love it. It's authentic. You know, you're really empowering other leaders. It's a great trait of leadership. So Scott, let's bring this home now. What is your definition of a real leader? Oh man, the, the million dollar question. Um, how did I answer it before? No, I'm just kidding. I can't, uh -huh. I can't tell you. <laughs> no, I, 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 I think I tied it back to our values. Um, you know, maybe, maybe said, you know, maybe connecting the dots between the topic we were just talking about. Um, you know, I think a, a real leader is a person that can see around corners to some degree. Um, you don't need to be a Steve Jobs visionary, but you want to be able to, you really want to think what's next. How, how do, how am what I doing in my day-to-day -day job? Like the task list that I've been given, like, that's great. You, if you can nail your task lick and do an A plus job, that's awesome. But how do you take it to the next level? What's next? How do you bring the organization forward? Are you helping to bring the organization forward? Or are you just helping to do the today, the now, the task list? And I think that to me is, is that proactiveness and that sort of like, you know, kind of, you know, plus, we call it plus one at Classy. So it's not just doing your, your normal stuff. You're, you're taking it to the next level. What's that plus one? So challenging yourself to do that, I think, is a really constructive thing to do. But I, I love when I look around the organization, I see leaders just taking the bull by the horns or or just taking the initiative on something and connecting the dots between teams or something that isn't in their lane. Like coming out of your lane a little bit is actually probably a really good thing. Um, that's what I look for in leadership, that sort of, you know, that proactiveness, that ambition, that that eager, that eagerness to basically solve problems and not say, oh, well, that, you know, that's not my role. You know, that's not what I do you've got the company hat on and you're looking at it holistically. So that to me is what a real leader is. Uh, I know I answered it more at a meta level last time, but more at a more tactical level. That's what I look for. You know, it's not even resumes experience. It's, you know, it's this person going to grab the bull by the horns and get stuff done, even if it's outside of their lane. I love it, Scott. It's been a pleasure having you on the show again. Thank you so much for your time. Enjoy your time up there in Montana. For Scott Chisholm, I'm Kevin Edwards asking you to go out there, grab the bull by the horns, connect the dots, and always, folks, keep it real. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Kevin. And thank you, good people, for hanging on to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast with Scott Chisholm. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And folks, if you want to hear the rest of Scott's answers, well, you have to be a part of our free community where you can unlock access to live interviews and ask the guests your direct questions after the show. All you have to do is go online to realleaders.com slash podcast and click on any upcoming interview to attend the show live. And also, for all the Apple Podcast listeners out there, help us out and leave a review letting us know what you thought of this episode and how we can improve your experience. And lastly, if you want to email me directly about a leader who is driving change in your community, please, by all means, email me at b at real-leaders.com. That's B-E at real-leaders.com. That's it for me. Thanks for being a real leader and stay tuned for the next episode.
And thank you, good people, for hanging on to this episode of The Real Leaders Podcast. And before we go today, I just want to make sure that you are all aware that we have now launched our new Real Leaders membership. If you want to get access to all of Real Leaders Magazine, private member-only events, and free courses online, hit the link in the show notes and enter in coupon code PODCAST20 to receive 20% off a 100 dollar a year subscription hit the link in the show notes enter in coupon code podcast 20 to receive access to all of real leaders to get you to the next level thanks for listening to this episode and always keep it real